Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and I bring you greetings from the church in Sri Lanka. Uh, whether we're here or across the world, when we're together with the body of Christ, it feels so good and so right. And we get a feeling of what it's going to feel like this side of heaven, of being there with God as his people. And it's such a privilege. So people who you don't know love you because you are part of the body of Christ. So I bring you that love from my part of the world. Now, for those of you who may not know where Sri Lanka is, I'm not offended. Uh, We are a very small island off the coast of India. It's an Indian Ocean. Uh, We have a population of 22 million people. But we're a country the size of West Virginia as a state. So we're pretty small. We're pretty packed in there. And for those who don't, may not know much of the history of Sri Lanka, we are just coming out of a 30-year civil war. And we were born into that war. We've seen some pretty difficult times. Um, and at the same time, uh, being a Christian is a very, very difficult thing because we're a minority. It may be about 2 or maybe 3% of the population. Uh, and most of our people uh, went, into, um, went away from Christianity after colonization. The British had our country, they ruled our country for many years, and when they left, they left back into their own religions with so much hatred towards Christianity. Um, so anybody who's a local and who's still a Christian is seen as a traitor because you're still with the, lang- the religion of the colonizers. So it's a very difficult context that we grew up in. But regardless of that, God has been doing phenomenal things, and it's such a joy to be his followers and be his children in the midst of whatever the circumstance, because he is God. And his love never fails. So it's such a privilege to be here. But having said that, I'm afraid, um, yeah, I'm not a preacher. <laughs> I've been invited to be I'm a preacher's son. And I've been asked to be here. So before I start attempting to preach, I would want you to pray that the Lord would speak. And the words that I speak will not be my own, that the Lord would speak. So would you really pray hard, like earnestly? <laughs> so could you put your right hand forward and just uh, pray for me right now? Father, we thank you from the depths of our heart for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whether we worship you here in Orange County or in Sri Lanka or Mumbai or Beijing or wherever we are, we are your children and we lift you up because you are our God. Lord, you are the hope of the nations. You are the true way and the light. And so, Lord, this morning as I'm speaking, may the words that I speak not be my own. But speak to your children here. May their lives be empowered and enriched so that they will be what you have called them to be throughout this year, Lord. So may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So going back to a little bit more of the context from where I come from. Like I said, because we grew up in a context of war, and as many experts say it was one of the most brutal civil wars the world has ever seen, uh, our country introduced suicide bombing to the world. Uh, young people would strap a bomb around their waist and go blow themselves up because they was under so much pressure and confusion, and it was very bloody. It was a very bloody war. So right now, I would watch a movie here with my friends, and it's an R-rated violent movie, and it doesn't faze us because we've seen more. We've seen really messed up stuff. We had seen so many of our politicians being assassinated uh, because they stood up for certain values. In the same context, being a Christian, like I said before, was not a popular thing. Uh, they did not look... Well, the Christians. I remember um, in this context is where my dad had the bright idea of being a Christian worker and a full-time servant for the Lord. And, uh, and he was so passionate about sharing the gospel in the most dangerous places. 
And I remember when my sister, myself, and my mom, we would be on our knees, and we'd be praying, saying, Lord, may your kingdom expand. May many people hear the gospel today, but also bring dad safe back home, because we were never sure if he would come back. That was the context. In such a situation, one day I'm watching news with my parents. I was just about nine or ten years old. And I had this strong feeling in my heart that the Lord was calling me into politics in Sri Lanka. So that's like you're finding excuses to get yourself assassinated. (laughs) Being a Christian and wanting to go into politics. Like, hey, shoot me. (laughs) Like, it was almost like, you know, you see these politicians getting blown up by these suicide bombers. And you're looking at, I want to be that guy when I grow up. (laughs) So it was not very cool. And my parents were not very happy about it. But put a long story short, the Lord has done amazing things. What we think we can't do. He does phenomenal things. And uh, the Lord led us to start a reconciliation movement. One year into us starting it, the war ended. A 30-year war came to an end. And we became the largest youth movement in the country for reconciliation. And we were leading Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims, and all these people coming together to help create a Sri Lankan identity. And then the fact that we were a minority-hated religious group was not an issue anymore. God opened doors. What we think is not possible, God smiles at it and says, anything's possible. And so I'm not here to talk about that. But when I was, um, I decided to take a break from the work. It's been four years of intense work and maybe a seven-year journey overall. And I thought, I need to take a break, and I'd like to come here. And Mariner's wife said, can I just come and hang out for two months just to take a break? And I wanted to start envisioning and planning for the future. I see God is opening doors for us to be a global movement. Wherever extremism and terrorism is a problem, that we can be in those areas to help those young people before they become terrorists. They were young people without a cause in their life. What if we catch them before that? What if we empower them in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in all these places where terrorist movements are just taking innocent young people and making them into extremists and terrorists? We can be there before, and we can make an impact. So making all these plans and getting excited and writing this book I've been working on, getting so excited, like, okay, it's going to be an awesome year. We're going to do this. In the midst of that, I had a feeling that I had forgotten my desperation for God that I had before when I knew it was impossible. Over the years, the skills, the ability, the opportunities that have come had made me almost think, like, I got it covered. It's going to be okay. There was an overestimation of personal ability and an underestimation about the cause and the gravity of it. And therefore, very optimistic resolutions for the new year. This is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. But a realization of I had lost the desperation for God. Sometimes we get so confident in a few good experiences that we forget that we need more of Him. And without God, we are not going to go the distance. We're not going to make an impact. And it really shook me. And I said, how could I have come to this sort of confidence that was not founded right? In this context, I read Exodus chapter 33, which is the verse we're going to study today. In this, if you can turn with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give, you, give it to you and your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and all the otherites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Some pretty intense stuff. The Lord had been with Israel all the way through, from Egypt, taking them out of slavery, taking them to the promised land. But it comes to a point where it begins to tell Moses, you know what? 
I'm not going to go with you, but I'll give you your promise. I'll give you the promised land. I'll take care of your enemies. I'll, everything's sorted, but I'm not going with you. Because if I continue to go with you, I might destroy you because you are a stiff-necked people. You are consistently stubborn and disobedient, so I may not be with you. Now, this is a very dangerous thing. Moses could have looked at this and said, okay, if we continue to be with God, we might get in big trouble. He might destroy us on the way. Therefore, let me just take the steel. It was almost like a blank check. You want to see what he's saying? He's going to, you're going to have a promised land that I told you you have? You get it. All your enemies, I'll take care of them. They're not going to be any match for you. And three, you're going to get this land, which is a land flowing with milk and honey. Fertile soil, food will not be an issue. Everything's taken care of. It was a blank check. And Moses could have said, sounds like a good deal. Lord, it was nice knowing you, but now it's time for us to move on. I'd rather do things our way than have the risk of you coming and destroying us. So let's call it a day. It's been nice knowing you. And mind you, this was no longer the Moses who was stammering by the burning bush. This was no longer the Moses who couldn't figure out his life, who ran away from everything. This was no longer the Moses who did not know a purpose for his existence, who was struggling with the identity crisis. This was the Moses who, by the grace of God, humbled the greatest civilization of the time. This was the Moses who led hundreds and thousands of his people who were mere slaves into a point that they were becoming a fabulous civilization. This was the Moses whose wisdom was so profound that people would stay in line for the entire day just to hear from him and to learn from him and to get his advice. This was the Moses whose the presence of God was so profound in him that the countenance of the Lord shone and people respected him and revered him. This was no longer that stammering man who had no business. This was a very gifted, intelligent, brilliant man. And he could have said, it was nice knowing you, Lord. Now it's up to me. I got this covered. He could have come and told his people, you are no longer the people of God. You're my people, the people of Moses. I am your man. He was the man at that point. He could have said he got everything sorted. But check this out. In verse 15, Moses gives one of the most brilliant responses to God in prayer that I've ever heard. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the earth, on the face of the earth? Moses was far too wise and mature to take a deal that didn't have God in the process. He was after the blesser and not the blessings. He was after the God who blesses as opposed to the blessings that came with it. He wanted more of God and less of himself. He was desperate for God. Even at such a mature and wise and ripe situation in his life, he knew he wanted more. And therefore he says, Lord, no can do. We are not moving from here if you don't come with us. How will the people know? We will be just another group of people, another nation. And the Lord was so moved by this. In verse 17 it says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. He moved the heart of God to a point that God said, I am with you now. I will go with you. If Moses hasn't, hadn't made that call at that point, it would have been Israel just trying to do it on their own and they would have been just another nation and destroyed eventually. But because they invited God and wanted God at all costs, even at the risk of God destroying them if they didn't walk in line with him, we'd rather have you, Lord. 
they were made into a greater nation. We may have not read about the Davids and the Solomons and all the great things were yet to come if Moses had taken that deal. Yes, it appeared a blank check, but he said, I'd rather have you, God. I want you. Many times in life, we get so comfortable and confident. And initially, we were just moving with fear and trembling. But after a while, God gives us his grace and we feel like we're great. The reality is, it was not we who were great to begin with. It is in his grace that we did these things. And we walked in that confidence. But after, because we have fallen into a routine of, I've done this all my life. I know what I'm doing. If it's that easy, maybe you and I are living in a comfort zone that doesn't risk doing greater things for God. Either we have underestimated the greater challenges called us to do or overestimated our personal ability to get it done. And I started saying, if Moses, a man of so much wisdom, saw the need for God, who am I to think I got it covered? Who are we? I says, okay, Lord, I, I want you. And I started thinking of this more. Lord, I don't want to do it in my strength because I know my strength will do such a limited thing. Even that is not guaranteed. But in you, there are endless possibilities. And I would rather surrender and have God have his way. That takes a lot. It comes with a risk. But it comes with the guaranteed knowledge that God is with you. And that we are, we are on the side of the Lord. So to try and understand this, I'm going to share a story with you where when I came from Sri Lanka to the States first time to go to college here, I came to Boston. Talk about a culture shock. Tropical island Sri Lanka, post-war Sri Lanka, to an intellectual capital of the world that freezes you to death. <laughs> and I came there, I was at Gordon College, and I was shivering. It wasn't even winter yet. I was shivering in fall. And I was asking, Lord, I could have died in Sri Lanka. So many ways I could die in Sri Lanka. You brought me here to die in the snow. <laughs> and I would pray, oh Lord, why? And my prayers were shivering, not because of anything else, because the cold was just freaking me out. That this is not for me. So many culture shocks. Everything was so strange for me. And I had to depend on God even more. But in the midst of that, one thing that really stood out was back home in our culture, in Asian culture in general, if somebody offers you a cup of tea, even if you want that tea, your answer is going to be no. Because you want to make sure that they really mean it and that you're not intruding and that you're not inconveniencing them, that they would, they're, really, they're serious about the offer. So you say no. So then again, they come and say, no, no, would you like a cup? Please. You say no again, just to make sure. And the third time when they tell you, they say, thank you, yes, please. Because you know you haven't overstepped your boundaries, you haven't intruded, you haven't inconvenienced them. That's how it works. So now, in that context, here I am in the United States, in Boston. <laughs> my roommates and my floormates come and say, hey, Prashan, you want to go out for lunch? First day of college. I say, no. They left. And I'm sitting there, how rude and insensitive and ignorant. Oh, no food, first day of school. Second day, hey buddy, we're going out for lunch, you want to come? I say no again, they leave again. I write to my mom, two days, no food. <laughs> These people are so insensitive. Third day they come, hey buddy, we're going out for lunch, you want to come? Before they could expect an answer, I was at the dosing, let's go. I'm not going to be hungry here. Moral of the story is... Jesus is Asian. (laughs) 
when you are asking God to be a part of your journey and what to happen, it's not a mere formality saying, Lord, I'd like you to be there. No, it's a desperate cry and authenticity that he sees. This one's serious. He really wants me. It is not just an offer and a formality. This is authentic from the depths of their heart. If you don't go, we are not moving. I want you, more of you, and less of me. That's sort of an authenticity. On our knees, crying for more of him. Sometimes we have everything figured out. We have an education. We have our resources. We have our skills. We have our networks. We have all these things lined up. So we have plan A, B, C, D. If things really get messed up, God help me. (laughs) Everything else sorted. We're so professional. Everything organized. Everything good. But we don't have room for God. There is a request. Lord, we'd like you to be here, but we know you're busy. We've got to figure it out. We don't say that, but it happens. It happens. And Satan loves that. Satan rather take us on as just an individual than be filled with the presence of God. He has no chance if that's the case. But he can mess around with us when we go solo. And he waits for us to go solo. He waits for us to wander away, to grab us, discourage us. But when we're filled with the presence of the Lord, there's no discouragement, there's no effect that will put us down because we're filled with his presence and we persevere. We need the Lord because... He will define our destiny. He will do greater things than we ever thought. Are we sincere in our thirst for God? Do we truly want more of Him? Are we ready to pray for 2013 and say, Lord, I want more of you and less of myself? That's a dangerous prayer, but it's a life-changing prayer. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says... I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, one of the most intelligent people of his era, one of the most educated, gifted people who had so much of a prominence in his society. But once he accepted Christ in the light of who Christ was and what he had, this was nothing. He counted it as garbage in the light of who Christ was. And even after that, he can say, Lord, I thank you. I live for you now, but I can live on my own. He says, I live by faith. Even now, every day, I live by faith on a dependence on you, not on my ability, not on who I am. He was one of the most gifted people of his time. We know how smart he is. We read his stuff and we're like, this guy was brilliant. But he said, I live by faith every day. If men of great wisdom and stature, from Moses to Paul, saw the value in being consistently desperate for God and living for him, who am I to think I got it covered? I believe God had a purpose for our life and to continue the work that Christ began. If not, when you and I accepted Christ, he would have sent lightning from heaven, struck us dead and taken us to heaven and protect us from continuing to sin and be tempted in this world. Don't you think so? He left us here for a purpose to continue his work. And how dare I think I can do his work by my own strength? Because I do it with what I see in the physical realm. But the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's the unseen. So I need the presence of God to lead me in a way that I just don't even understand. We don't even get the game, leave alone win it. We don't even understand the rules of engagement, leave alone win it. But in his spirit, the impossible becomes possible. And that is that desperation these men had. We need the Lord 
because we are aware of the depth of the challenge and the importance of the battle. We are called to play a crucial role in God's kingdom in a crucial time. This is a huge spiritual battle. Sometimes I think it's easier uh, to, uh, to be desperate for God in our context, where the church has been persecuted, you don't know when you'll get attacked, poverty is a big issue, you're not, you don't have the most gifted people educated-wise, but in the midst of that, our people get on their knees and they pray and they shake the walls of heaven and say, Lord, if you don't show up, there's nothing. And then God just blows our mind away with his grace. And he expands his kingdom. But then I've been here for about a month and a half and I'm realizing you're as persecuted as we are. It's just very subtle. The values that you stand for, the gospel that we believe in, in the word of God and all those things, people mock and trying to bring those things down. And if you and I think that that's just a fleshly battle, we've got it very, very mistaken. There is an attack on the church of God, and it is not a battle against flesh and blood. So you and I can't win it with our intelligence and our capacity. We have to be dependent on God so he will win the battle for us. He has already won. It's just a matter of us depending on him for him to deliver his kingdom, his work. We are his vessels. There is a strong attack against the church, against families, against our morals, against the way we live. And you think that was a physical and a political attack? That is spiritual warfare. And you and I can't change it by our strength, but with the Spirit of God. We don't need to say, God, I got it covered. You don't got it covered. We don't understand what's going on. But we need Him. I love the words of Anne Graham Lott, the daughter of Billy Graham. Uh, She was interviewed on television and she was asked, how could God let something like this happen regarding uh, Hurricane Katrina? Anne Graham gave an extremely profound answer where she said, I believe God is deeply saddened by this, just as we are. But for years we've been telling God to get out of our schools, to get out of our government, to get out of our lives. And being the gentleman he is, I believe he has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessings and his protection if we demand he leave us alone? All of society is trying all they can to keep God out. And they're thinking, they think it's a political battle that they can keep you out. But for us, it's nothing new for our part of the world. Our people have a difficult time defining democracy and religious freedom. We don't have any of those things going for us. We only have a dependence on God. And God is still God. He's seated on the throne. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They can bring it on in any way they want, but they cannot question the power of God. And how will the world see? When you and I are in the world, if we are not filled with the presence of God, we are just like everybody else. There are nice people out there. There are good-meaning people out there. There are kind people out there who don't know the Lord. But what makes us different is the fact that we are filled with the presence of God and we are in society. They can bring all the policies they want. They can try all the things to hinder the church and persecute the church and the values you stand for, but they cannot keep you and I out of society. We have the right to exist, and we just don't exist. We are filled with the presence of of our God, and we are the light of the world because we reflect the presence of God. So whether it's a dictatorship or whatever we live in, God is God. And when his children surrender and depend on him, walls will crumble. That is the beauty of being children of God. Whatever circumstance, whatever persecution, we are stronger the more we get on our knees. I've heard the story, the success of a Christian is the distance between his or her knees and the ground. How consistently do we fall? 
to him. And John Wesley said a very profound statement. He said, give me a hundred men and women who fear nothing but God and who are willing to surrender to the utmost and I will change the world. The reality is, are we willing to surrender to God? Are we willing to let him have his way? And then, my friends, the best is yet to come. The journey has just begun. And I know you're making your plans and your, all your strategic moves for the new year, what you want to do. But if you feel it's not challenging enough that you can do it with your strength, that means that's not what God has for you. He's calling you for greater things. It's a very crucial time in your country. And your country is looking for men and women who are not Christian for the name, but Christian in their lifestyle. Who are not the light of the church, but light of the world. Where in the darkest places that we'll go there and we'll love unconditionally. When they hate, we'll love back. When they're angered, we will be passionate and compassionate. And then they would know that it's more than the words and more than an ideology that the truth is here and the truth will set them free. And the reality is that God has anointed us so profoundly that if we live in him and depend on him day in and day out, even though they don't know God, they would see him in your life. And they would know that they too are created in God's image. They don't even know it. They're yearning for God. And the only way they see it is through you and I if we are there, filled with God's Spirit. But if we go solo, we're just like everybody else. We think we're good, but we're not. It's all about Him. Francis of Assisi said a very profound statement. He said, preach Christ at all times. Use words when necessary. People have heard us preach them to death. But if we can be in the community, not just with a self-righteous attitude that we're good, but with an attitude of humility, knowing that God has made us and clothed us with the righteousness of His Son, there will be more power than we've ever noticed before. And I believe that to be true. I come from a part of the world where that is all we've got. God is planned one, two, three, five, and ten. After that, no plan. And that God honors. God is calling you for great things this year. But can we surrender? Can we fully surrender? I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was doing an internship. I was working for the Senate Republican Conference. And when I was there, um, I was asking, Lord, am I making an impact here? What's, what's the whole deal? I'm just here day in and day out. Like, and I felt in my spirit the Lord wanted me to invite all the interns to my apartment and cook them a meal, a Sri Lankan meal. I'm not a cook. But I really felt I should. So I went. I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to try and do this. I went and taught call all the interns and said, I'd like to invite you all to my house. I'm going to cook a meal for you guys. And they're like, oh, nice. But then I had two Orthodox Jewish friends who were also interns. They came up to me and said, Prashant, thank you so much for the invitation, but we can't come. I said, why not? The food won't be kosher, so we can't be a part of it. I said, is the food not kosher because it's Sri Lankan or because the way it's prepared? He said, no, no, it's the way it's prepared. I said, why don't you go to your rabbi and ask him how to cook kosher food? He says, you'll do that? I said, yeah, I want to find I'll cook kosher Sri Lankan fruit if it means that you guys will be there. So he went to his rabbi. He found it and he came, hey, it's just the chicken. You just have to buy the chicken from a kosher shop. And I said, brilliant. Why don't you bring the chicken and I'll cook it? <laughs> so I'm about to get ready to cook. And then he calls back and says, sorry, we're not going to be able to make it. I said, why not? He says, well, the food has to be cooked in kosher pots and pans. I'm like, dude, I don't even know what that means. 
And uh, then he says, well, it's okay. I know you tried. He said, no, no, no. Tell me where can I find kosher pots and pans. And he's like, uh, well, we have some at the Jewish fraternity house. I said, fine. We'll have the party there. I'll come and cook there. So I text all the friends. We're all meeting at the Jewish fraternity. He's like, Jewish fraternity? What? <laughs> so here I am cooking food with all these Orthodox Jewish friends around me. And I'm like, what am I doing here? What's going on? But we cook the meal. People come. People of all faiths. You have atheists and Christians and Jews. and All of us sitting together and having this meal. They thought it was good because they've never had Sri Lankan food. <laughs> but it went good. I had a good time, they had a good time, and then I was walking back home, I'd missed my transport, I was just right walking back, and I was like, Lord, did that even make a difference? Was it even worth it? And didn't know, I just left it. But when I was about to leave my internship, my boss says, Prashant, I want you to come in, see something. And then a file full of emails printed out. He says, do you remember that dinner you had? I said, yeah. That boy was so touched by it, he wrote an email to us saying that he had an amazing experience in Washington, D.C. He loved the opportunity, but that dinner changed his life. And he goes on to say, all my life I was excluded because I was an Orthodox Jew. No one went out of their way to include me. Here, this Christian from Sri Lanka went out of his way to prepare a meal and to include me. And that day we sat together having this meal, people of all faiths enjoying and laughing together. And that's when my heart changed, and I wanted to commit my life to religious reconciliation. Thank you for this opportunity, but that night changed my life. And that email went viral on Capitol Hill. Everybody was emailing it, and, and one of the senators got that email, and he says, I'm on the Senate floor with tears in my eyes. God is so good. And this boy didn't stop at that. He was so excited, he wrote about this story to all the Jewish newspapers across the United States. The Jewish community thinks I'm a cook. And he, he called me back, and then I was in Sri Lanka, and he calls me and said, Prashant, I'd like you to be part of my wedding. I'm like, I'm in Sri Lanka, I can't come. He said, no, I really want you to know that that changed my life, and I'll never forget that. And today he's involved with religious reconciliation work among the Muslim, the Jewish, and the Christian community. And he's part of the global movement that we're now leading. All of that based on a meal that wasn't even good. But the amazing thing is I remember being desperate and saying, Lord, I'm here, I'm nothing much, but I'm all yours. Use me, do something for your glory. And just saying that and then seeing the outcome. When we are fighting a battle with what we just see, we only end up getting what we see. But when we start committing to the Lord and asking him to give us his eyes to see beyond what we see and to be led by him day in and day out, our lives become an adventure. It's an exciting adventure. I used to love that this country has produced some of the greatest heroes of our faith to have gone to the ends of the world, sacrificed everything they had to share the gospel. And in those days when they said goodbye to their hometowns here, they never saw it again. And they shared the gospel because then they knew they couldn't do it by their strength. There wasn't this cocky confidence that they could make it happen, but there was this desperation, Lord, I'm all yours, use me. And the Lord changed the world through that generation. And the Bible, it says, when God blesses one generation for being his children and being righteous, those blessings go for seven generations. And so you have a new generation that feels so blessed that, you know, no one's that good. It was the blessings that came from generations before, the foundations that were laid that made this nation great. And you and I have the choice to start building that commitment to God, 
so that generations ahead of, of after us will be blessed. That's the level of his gratitude for those who surrender. Our God will never be our debtor. When you sacrifice, he comes back and overflows your heart. For some of you who are control freaks like I am, would find it very difficult to believe in this. I don't want, I like these things. I like the way it is. I don't want to fully commit to God. He's going to mess things up. He's known for that. You know, I'll take what he has given me. Thank you very much. I've inherited certain skills and I'll just play with this. I'm very good in the corporate world. I'll just do my thing. But if you're filled with the presence of the Lord in the marketplace, in the corporate world, in the political halls, wherever we are, God will do things that are beyond our imagination. But we say, I got it figured. I have my stuff. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. But I'm okay now. But if you refuse to say that and say, no, Lord, I will not go without you. I want more of you. And then we'll start seeing him doing greater things. And for those of you control freaks like me, here's a story. There was once um, a young boy and a mom, and they were walking to the mall. And on their way to the mall, the young kid who never acted shy, was acting very shy when he saw this old man who opened the jar of candy and pointed it to him and said, son, take some. And he was never shy, but he hid behind his mom and acted as if he didn't want it. And the old man at the shop said, oh, poor fellow, he's shy, let me get some for him. Put his hand in, took some, put it in a bag, and let him have it. On the way back home, the mom's like, son, you're never shy. What happened? Why did you do that? He says, mom, I was not shy. I was smart. Like, what do you mean? Did you see how big those man's hands were? If I went to take it with my own hand, I'll just get a little bit. But I let him do it for me. And I go much, much more. Mom, I'm not shy. I'm very smart. And the same is true. The God we worship has great hands. And when he decides to bless you and you make those sacrifices, like the disciples notice, your nets will tear. There will be an overflow. But the reality is we don't live for those blessings. We live for him. And he will never be a debtor to us. He's our God. What is he calling you to do this year? Let's redefine the boundaries of our influence. And let God define what he wants. Because the best is yet to come. I believe God is doing the great thing here in this church in Mariners. It's such a joy to be a part of it. But it's all going to depend on your ability and my ability to surrender to God and let him have his way. My dad joined full-time ministry for $2.50 a month. That's below the poverty line in most countries. But the Lord was never our debtor. Both my sister and I had a college education here in the States. We've been blessed beyond what we can understand, but we never lived for the blessings. And I've realized when our God sees us through, He sees us beyond what we thought was possible. Are you and I willing to make those steps? Because God is not done with you. Some of you might say, well, I've lived all my life to try and get to where I am. I don't want to be desperate all over again. You know, I'm, I'm done. You're not done. If you're still living, you're his. He's not done with you. Some of you say, I'm too young, I'm waiting. No, no, if you can understand what I'm saying right now, he's talking to you. The time has come. There's a world out there hurting in pain, looking for some real love and looking for their maker. And you are the vessel that God has ordained. Would you rise with me if you were ready?